Allah billahi samiyan alim min ash-shaytan al-lahim al-rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, may God's peace and blessings be upon His holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of His household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ajjah farajahum. Um, brothers, sisters, dear respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this third uh, lecture that we, have, we are dedicating to the topic of the soul. Uh, or in the series on the afterlife, this is the fourth of the lectures. After an introduction about the importance of the topic of the afterlife, we started talking about uh, the place of the soul, understanding why the soul is important for the big topic of the afterlife. And we said that if you don't formulate or you don't develop a full comprehensive understanding of uh, your relationship to your soul or a human being's relationship to their soul, then you may end up having a completely distorted, falsified, incorrect belief of the afterlife. And then we said from there, the, a false belief in the afterlife means your whole belief system is going to be uh, incomplete or problematic. So we're not going to repeat any of, uh, kind of those, those main points. What we said or what we tried to cover uh, in the first two lectures related to the soul is that we tried to establish very clearly what do we mean by the soul, that the soul exists as an independent entity. And that in addition to the fact that it exists, this is what explains who you really are, so your identity, who you truly are. It's your soul, not your body. That's one. And two, we said this is what justifies or explains to us our unity. What allows you to say that you are still the same person that you were 10 years ago, 30 years ago, or 20 years into the future. Because the experiences that you're going to have in life and the body that you're going to have is going to be fragmented and it's going to be changing all the time. So what allows you to say that despite all of this, you are still the same person? And we said the quickest, easiest, easiest explanation to this happens to be your soul. Now, you may call it something else. It doesn't matter because there is stigma and we're going to see a little bit of that today. Uh, associated especially from a materialist point of view or you know we're going to see how it's referred to as the orthodoxy of science today how science refers to this and does not want to take into consideration anything beyond your physical body your materialist uh, existence and so what we've seen until now is we've established a proof that you are the soul and that you are also a body but you are mainly a soul that has a body in this world and two that that soul can exist independently of the body and three that this is what explains your unity in time and in the different experiences that you have as you go through this life we went a little bit more in detail about some of those aspects and different proofs we pre presented a number of rational arguments for the existence of the soul and then we concluded with Quranic references to the existence of the soul. And we presented our understanding of some of the verses of the Quran that talked about the existence of the soul. 
So we're not going to repeat any of those. Inshallah, those are well understood and, and simple enough to understand. What we wanted to continue with today is that, first of all, we said that perhaps the two lectures that we dedicated, and we said this is one of the most you know, deep, complex, fascinating topics in the philosophy of mind, in Islamic philosophy, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's not realistic to think that we can cover the entire topic in a couple of lectures. And we're kind of skimming the surface here, but enough so that we can actually continue with the topic of the afterlife. Except that what we presented until now may constitute more of the classic version of understanding the soul. And so we wanted to add to that a little bit of what's being said and how the soul is being discussed in the current world, in today's world. And, you know, as it was mentioned in the past, this is stuff that we covered here and there. We dedicated a few lectures to some of these topics in the past. So inshallah, it's not going to be repetitive from that point of view for those who have been following from the beginning. That's one. And two, the point here is that we're simply trying to present a very, uh, let's call it informal overview of what's out there in terms of the soul. We claimed some big things over the past couple of times when we met. We said that those who do not believe in the soul, those who only believe that a human being is the physical body that you see, which we refer to as physicalism or materialism, we said those people cannot accept, cannot believe that a human being also has a free will. Those two beliefs cannot go together. You either believe that you have something beyond your body or you don't. If you only believe that you have a body and everything that you are is limited to this body, then you cannot believe that you also have a free will, that you get to choose what you're doing, that you get to make free choices in your life. You can't. And we're going to, so we, you know, these are big claims. Maybe someone is going to say we misunderstood. Uh, they don't all say that and so on and so forth. So that's what we're trying to do. One of the things we're trying to do. The second thing is if you do not have your freedom of choice, you're also not aware of yourself. And this is another important point. You're feeling that you are aware. You're feeling that you're a conscious entity, that you feel that you exist, that you feel that you are thinking. Materialists tell us this is an illusion. You do not really, you are not really aware of yourself. You are not really conscious of yourself. And the unity does not need to be justified you are nothing more than just independent experiences, but there's so many of them, and they're so continuous all the time happening in your brain that you get the impression, it's an illusion, you get the impression that you are one entity that you refer to yourself as I. But in fact, you're just fragments bunched together, lumped together as though it is one whole. But it's not actually one. So all we're trying to do today is to present... This theory from the actual works, from the actual excerpts, from those big thinkers who talk about this, to contrast it with what we've said, and to present maybe a little bit of the consequences of this type of belief. Where does this lead us? If you accept those premises, if you accept those 
arguments and that type of belief, where does that lead you? What are the conclusions and repercussions on your belief system and on you as a human being if you accept that type of materialism? Okay? And then the last point, very quickly, as we said, we're not trying to, you know, argue any of this. Here, you know, four books that I had time to quickly grab and prepare some notes on. There are dozens others that we could present. And I personally read dozens more on this topic only. And, you know, if we wanted to dedicate lectures on this, it's a very fascinating topic. And each one of the bullets that we're going to cover, there's entire books written about it. We're just providing a very quick overview of this. That's one. And two, so as we're saying, we're not trying to argue anything one way or another today. All we're trying to say is those things that we mentioned in the past, we're now providing the proofs that this is actually what they say because it's kind of cheap claims, especially when they're so surprising. That's one. The second thing is until now, we have clearly and accurately, hopefully, presented the idea of the soul with the arguments. So we provided the rational arguments and we provided the Quranic arguments. Now, the main argument basically we're trying to make with this is that regardless of the rational arguments that are presented, and we can present other ones, slightly more sophisticated, if everything we have said until now is valid and true and logical, we've established the validity of religion. And so if we say that religion says there is a soul, whether you can prove it or not with science becomes a secondary point, right? So this is an additional argument to everything that we've said and that we're going to say today because there's, there can be a lot of back and forth. There can be a lot of questioning and debate about a lot of the points that we're going to present today. But the bottom line is if religiously we've proven, which we have done, that there is a God and that he has sent a religion with teachings and scripture to humanity, in the form of the Qur'an for sure, and then the Qur'an says that there is a soul. In that case, that's it. We know that there is a soul. Now we also want to see, okay, so what else can we find out about the soul when we look at the other disciplines, including the more modern science that we have uh, available to us? So that's kind of very quickly and very generally from the introduction. So what do we want to do here? So here in this Book. This is written by uh, a man by the name of Mario Beauregard. Very quickly, when he wrote this, he wrote another one later, but just his credentials here. He's a PhD, Associate Research Professor, Department of Psychology and Radiology and Neuroscience Research Center at the University of Montreal, and co-author of Spiritual Brain and more than 100 publications in neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry. So just to establish that when we're going to be quoting from these people, they're well established in their fields. Okay. So here he says, uh, and I'm reading just from page two. This is just to kind of introduce the topic and the big, you know, uh, lay of the land and where, what are the big issues and what are we trying to cover in this? So he says, are we nothing but sophisticated animals? Where does our sense of self originate? Is there a difference between our brains and our minds or consciousness? And this is the question that we, we ask. Is there a difference between the mind and the brain? And in English, it's very easy because there's two words for it. And if you go in different languages, you will find that too. There's a difference between your mind and your brain. Why? Why has language dedicated two separate uh, words to this, two separate terms to this? 
What happens to us after our body perishes? Does our consciousness completely dissolve into nothingness? Can the mind exist without the body? Over the past several centuries in the West, most scientists have functioned with a strict materialist framework that holds to one essential assumption, which is matter is all that exists. So he says over the past few centuries, all of science is based on that assumption alone. This materialist viewpoint has become the lens through which most of us interpret the world, interact with it, and judge what is true. Mainstream neuroscientists, scientists like myself who study the brain and how it works, operate from the view that electrical impulses, and we're going to talk about that, electrical impulses in the brain account for all of our thought patterns and mental experiences. In the harsh judgment of the famed molecular biologist Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the molecular DNA, the structure of DNA, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but your nerve cells, your neurons. Yet, is matter really all that exists? Most of, most of us, regardless of our religious beliefs, so most of humanity, feel intuitively that our consciousness, ourselves, what makes us unique individuals, resides apart from our bodies. Human cultures globally and throughout history have conceived of a vital principle, the seat of mind and self. So where does your mind and yourself sit? Where is that? He's saying it's the mind. It's not the brain. The seat of mind and self that survives the death of the body as an individual spirit or as part of a universal spirit. So he's basically saying all of humanity has always held and still continues to hold that your brain and you are two separate entities or your mind and consciousness, who you truly are, is different than just your brain. This is to, and the big questions are the ones that we're trying to look at. What, does it, what do we know about them based on today's science? So the workings of the brain. And this to me, two, we're trying to cover two things here. Um, I don't know if it's here or elsewhere. There are people who are not muted. If you're not muted, please mute so workings of the brain the reason we're talking about this is for two reasons the first one is we're going to be referring to here and there some excerpts that talk about how the brain works so just a quick overview of the big parts that may be mentioned elsewhere just to keep in mind that's one and the second reason is, as we go through all of this, just come back to these things that we're talking about now. So very quickly, what are we talking about? And of course, this could become 10 lectures just on how the brain works. Okay, this is just in, in two minutes, in three minutes. When we look at the brain, the operations that we're looking at, the mechanics, the machinery that we're looking at, when we're talking about neuroscience or is there a soul or not, starts from the neuron, the single cells that make up your brain. The neuron is made up of, it's a very complex cell. It's not just, you know, the, the typical cells that you see elsewhere. 
It's kind of like a circle and there's a nucleus in it and it's another circle and that's it. The neuron is a little bit more sophisticated. It has a nucleus, it has dendrites, which are basically kind of little fingers or things that allow it to connect to other things. And then it has one long arm that protrudes out of the neuron called an axon. So we're gonna look at the axon a little bit more and then we're gonna look at how it connects to other cells. That's all we're gonna need. We don't need to get into more sophisticated or, or complex uh, theory than that. What happens in the brain is that if you look at the axon, so it looks like one arm, one filament, one trunk that comes out of the cell and attaches to or touches on another cell, another neuron, another cell. That's how your nervous system functions. That's how your, everything in your body functions. This is all the signals that happen are happening through this type of cell. There's three types of neurons, not important. The axon has electric impulses. How do they happen? Because we have to keep asking, how did it originate? We're trying to see, can everything that you are, your soul, including all of your emotions, your consciousness, your memories, your different psychological states, so on and so forth, can all of this really be reduced to what we're going to describe? So what happens in the axon is that there is a little electrical impulse. When they, went, when they first started doing the research on this, the human neurons are too small. If you try to, in the 1970s, if they tried to do any experimentation on them, they would destroy them. So they started looking in the animal world. Finally, they found neurons that are really big. The squid has very big neurons. So they started doing experimentation on the squid neurons. And then today they can do a lot more precise work on the human neurons. But this is how it all started in the 1970s and onwards. So they discovered that when you look at the axon, there's a, an electrical impulse. There's a charge. How does this work? There's a difference in two substances inside the axon. You have sodium ions and potassium ions. They're always in a specific ratio, three to two. If there's more sodium ions that come in, that changes the polarity of the axon. It changes the electrical charge. So it's going to be depolarized. And as soon as that ratio goes back to normal, it repolarizes. It goes back to its initial state. This is how every neuron functions, every cell. You have 86 billion of them in your brain, okay? How does this sodium ion come in and out? There's tiny little gates, portals, that allow it to come in and out. And the neuron decides how much of it to let in and out and what to do with it. This electrical impulse goes all the way to the end of the axon to transmit something, that information, to transmit that electrical impulse to the next neuron, to tell it what to do. For instance, to move a muscle. For instance, to perceive something. So it needs to connect to another neuron. 
This connection, so now we're moving from one cell to another, happens at a place called a synapse. The synapse allows two neurons to communicate with each other. So what's the synapse? The synapse, in reality, it's a lot of empty space that the cell has to travel, that electrical impulse has to travel chemically and electrically. So in order to speak to the other side, there's like a bridge that you have to build. The cell has to build. The first neuron has to build a bridge to the second one. So how does it build it? It builds it with electricity and a chemical. So it's a chemical or electrical impulse, both actually. This is where every neuron has to decide what is it actually saying? How is it actually interacting with the other neuron? So this is where it's going to decide which chemicals to use, how much of them to use, to tell something to the next neuron, which will again do the same process. There is a difference in the sodium and potassium ions that will recharge and so on and so forth. And this goes on through thousands and millions and billions of neurons. And this is how everything that you do, everything that happens in your body is working. So the question is always, yeah, but why did the sodium ions come in? What made them come in? What pushed them through? I under, I'm understanding the mechanics. The more I study, I see the how. I see how something is happening. But why is it happening? So the truth is, if you look at these, you see that it's always happening. It's kind of a loop. It's constantly, there's no specific concrete beginning and end to any of this. It's always happening all the time. And it's extremely complex. They're, they used to say, now they know that it's not true, but they used to say there's more uh, neurons in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way, right? 86 billion is a very big number. And even that, they're not really sure. No one has come out and said that's the exact number. It's an estimate. They've done some studies and they, that's the best estimate they have. So around, they used to say it's around 100, mil, 100 billion. Now that it's 86 is kind of the number they use, 86 billion. Whereas they say there's between uh, 100 and 400 billion stars in our Milky Way. In any case, needless to say, it's still a number way beyond human comprehension, 86 billion. And for anything to happen in your body, it's never one neuron working. It's millions of these working together. And some of these are extremely complex mechanisms and, and processes, and some of them are simpler. If you're kind of just, you were asleep and you just open your eyes and you notice the wall in front of you, that perception is completely different than if you're sitting and working on a complex, you know, mathematical equation, right? So how your neurons are firing is completely different. Some of these are much simpler. Some of these are much more complex. But generally speaking, this is the mechanics of it. So to come back to the two points we're trying to make with this is one, keep this in mind as we're going to go through, especially when some scientists are going to question this and what it does it actually mean, one. And two, for yourself, do you think, can you imagine how these electrical little impulses and these chemical, as complicated and complex as they may be, as meticulous as they may be, 
How can this little chemical transaction, chemical change, become a memory, become your consciousness, become your feelings, become something that happened to you before and you still feel that it is you? This is what we're trying to see. Can you change those electric impulses and chemical changes into who you are? Because the claim of materialism is exactly that. Who you are are these electrical impulses happening in your brain. And the way to prove it is to do different types of scans, you know, MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, and other topographies of your brain, mapping of your brain, different scans. And based on that, so what they try to see, as we said, these cells, they work together. So when they do a scan of your brain, they can't really get to the level of a cell. They're never getting to the, the, to the level of one neuron. And there, if there's not enough of them, there's not enough millions of these cells working together, there's not enough water and uh, uh, blood and electric impulses happening, the scan doesn't catch it. Nor will the scientists know what to do with it because there's too much noise, right? You want to concentrate on those things that are very important. So you eliminate those things that may be very important, but you have to. You eliminate and you find averages. And based on that, you say the results of my scan show that this or that area in the brain is responsible for this function or that function. And we're going to come to that, which is the idea of localization. That only one area in your brain, if you look at the brain, generally speaking, there are parts of the brain, but they all look kind of the same. Right? So they used to say, you know, there was a big theory, it's no longer accepted in science, that you're basically made up of three brains. You have your reptilian brain, your mammalian brain, and then your cortex, which is found more in human beings, whereas your reptilian is more responsible for the very basic functions of your body, your fear, your hunger, those things, your balance. Mammalian is much more complex things you do. And then your cortex or neocortex, the front, is for the abstract thinking that you only find in human beings and language analysis and things like that. So, but now the more they look at it, you see your brain is always, all of it is firing all the time. All of it is on all the time. Except that there are areas that seem to come more to life than others, depending on what activity you do. So what they do is they look at the activity, they look at before you were exposed to an image or a sound or before you were asked to do something, they look at the state of your brain and the, the scan. And then as it's happening, they do another scan and they remove the stuff that's common to both. And what's left, the difference is going to be the area that they are assigning to a specific function. So they're not, the truth is the entire brain is still functioning and still firing. So it's not really accurate to say only one area is doing one thing in the brain. But that's how most scans are happening today. And we're going to see a lot of those examples. And what's being measured, so really bottom line is to summarize all of this, you're either looking at water movement, you're either looking at electrical impulses, and it comes down to those chemical movements and electrical impulses happening between neurons. That's what's being measured. From that, they say, therefore, this is the location of sight or something more abstract. This is location of wisdom, as we shall see, in the brain. 
Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the next slide. Okay, so with this in mind, I had a quote here. Let me just see about localization. Yeah, so here he's referring to, you know, a, a philosopher or, a, you know, a man who had looked at all of this and he, he was here explaining this uh, Talus. Talus is a, again, let me read who he is so that, you know, he's trained as a doctor going on to become a professor of geriatric medicine, University of Manchester, elected fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences, retired from medicine 2006, and he became a full-time writer, and he has a bunch of, uh, a bunch of uh, really thick books. They're all good. Anyways, um, so here he, he's referring to a man by the name of Frederick uh, Albert Lange, who's writing in 1881. As they were doing these experiments on the brain and thinking about the brain, he talks about the different faculties and different abilities of the brain, and he says something interesting, and he's coming back to this. Because he is questioning here this idea that can you really say that only one area of the brain is responsible for one function? Or is it not all the brain working together? So he says, and he says this is beautifully said or beautifully expressed by the philosopher. Uh, he said, the mind or soul would be a parliament. So if you're not looking at the entire brain, you're only looking at a part of it. It would be like a parliament of little men together each one of whom, as happens also in a real parliament, possesses but a single idea, which he ceaselessly tr strives to make prevail. Instead of one soul, phrenology gives us 40. So he's basically saying, but at the end of the day, you're still feeling like you're one person. And the brain is working all together towards one goal, whatever it may be. You decide to move, you decide to sit, you decide to sleep. If your brain is firing and each one of these areas is working independently of the others, then how come you are one at the end and you're performing one act or doing one thing? It means that there is something that has to bring it all together at the end that makes it one, which is you. So here he's questioning this idea of the insistence in modern science and modern uh, medicine and these scans of the brain to concentrate on localization. That there's only one part and this part is responsible for this function. This is really questioning that. In any case, so let's start with the next big claim, which is, I, th I think this is clear and we've made it clear enough, but this is just to really establish it from their own words. So here we're basically saying that materialism reduces everything that a human being is to the things that we describe. And there's a lot of quotes that we can use. He's, here are some of them. Um, okay, so let me start with this one here. Okay, so this first idea is that sometimes this is presented as kind of the latest scientific progress. You are reading the most trendy, latest thing that has come out of science to say that we have finally been able to understand how the brain works and therefore we can reduce a human being to the materialist entity that is inside this cranium. 
So here he's telling us, actually, this has started from since human beings have really been talking seriously about medicine, they've been putting these ideas forth. And one example is the man that is considered the father of medicine, Hippocrates. So here he's reading to us, or, or we're reading from the writing of Hippocrates himself. We're going, you know, 2,500, 2,000 more years in the past. So he writes, men ought to know that from the brain and from the brain only arises our pleasures, joys, laughter, jests, as well as our sorrows, pains, griefs, and tears. Through it, in particular, we think, see, hear, and distinguish the ugly from the beautiful, the bad from the good, the pleasant from the unpleasant. So he basically reduced everything you are to your brain. So yes, 2,000 years later, we're still saying the same thing, but this is really nothing new. He's been saying that for a while. And at that time, there was a huge thing. Aristotle used to think it's the heart, not the brain. Okay? So there were people contesting this at that time, as there are people contesting it today. Okay, and of course, so he continues. We, we read this, but you know, here he, he reads, Hippocrates sounds very, very much like Francis Crick, talking 2,500 years later. You, your joys and sorrows, memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. So this is 2,500 years later. We haven't really progressed much from that idea. Now, so here to continue with this idea, these are the more contemporary, the biggest name perhaps you should know when you get into this world and the materialism around the whole idea of you are nothing but your brain. A lot of the arguments and a lot of the ideas have come one specific uh, new atheist, they refer to them as the new atheists, it's Daniel Dennett. Okay, there's a few of them, but this is his field, and he's written a lot about this. So he writes, Daniel Dennett calls, called the contemporary orthodoxy. So he basically says, if you want to say what science says today, this is what it says. Now, of course, you have other scientists who say that's not what science says, but that's his claim. And that's the claim of many scientists. And so now we're quoting Daniel Dennett. He says, there is only one sort of stuff, matter, the physical stuff of physics, chemistry, and physiology. And the mind is somehow nothing but a physical phenomenon. In short, the mind is the brain. We can, in principle, account for every mental phenomenon using the same physical principles, laws, and raw materials that suffice to explain radioactivity, continental drift, photosynthesis, reproduction, nutrition, and growth. He says, whatever you look at, whatever you want to study in the universe, you have laws and principles and sciences in place to understand it. The same exactly are going to apply to understanding what a human being is, which is nothing more than what's going on chemically and physically inside their brain. Okay, so, and... So long story short, here's the, the summary. Mental phenomena must be composed of nerve impulses and the mind must be the activity of the brain. So mind equals brain, brain equals mind, and equals, equals a human being. And there is nothing more. Now, let's go to another book. And this is the newer book of Beauregard. Here he is saying, 
And this is a very famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell. Another name to keep in mind, especially if you want to do more thinking and research about this topic. So here he says, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. So they were random blind processes that created a human being. There was no design. There was no purpose for it. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. So atoms that just happen to find themselves in the same place at some point. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. See, now we're linking directly to the afterlife. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast depth of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried underneath or beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain, all this is so sure, so certain, that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. If there is something that you want to call a philosophy that does not accept that you're nothing more than just these atoms and how they're interacting with each other, you can't call that a philosophy. It doesn't stand. It's not a philosophy. Don't even refer to that as a philosophical system. And maybe one more quote on this topic. Three quotes very quickly. One more from Russell. The first dogma which I came to disbelieve. So the moment you say dogma is basically something that you held for truth, but it's not true. The first dogma which I came to disbelieve was that of free will. So keep that in mind. That's what we're going to come back to. That a human being has a free will. You're actually choosing what you think you're choosing. It seemed to me that all notions of matter were determined by the laws of dynamics and could not therefore be influenced by human wills. And a human is nothing more than matter. So whatever applies to the rest applies to you, despite your illusion that you have a free will. You're nothing more than the result of these interactions. Another quote, this is from Marvin Minsky, an artificial intelligence guru. Everything, including that which happens in our brains, depends on these and only these, a set of fixed deterministic laws, a purely random set of accidents. All theory is against freedom of the will, all experience for it. So if you talk, if you ask human beings, everybody will tell you, I'm experiencing free will. But if you go to science, if you go to theory, all theory is against freedom of will. And so he claims all experience for it. Okay, so that's the conclusion. So what does this all lead to? So the the first thing that we're going to see is that all of this is based on the idea that all of this is coming to us from evolutionary psychology. If you look at the behavior of a human being, we are told, the reason why you are how you are, the reason why you choose certain things and not certain things, the reason you behave consciously and unconsciously Everything about you is explained with evolutionary psychology. So what's evolutionary psychology? They say, first of all, you have the word evolutionary, so the theory of evolution. 
that the reason why you are the way you are today can be explained by looking at how you were, you know, two million years ago. How did human beings live? How much of humanity was spent somewhere? So for instance, they say the majority of the history of humanity was that human beings were hunters, gatherers. So they were in the savannas, they were these kind of more sophisticated primates that were trying to find different types of food. So everything about you is adapted for that type of living. And it doesn't work with present day, you know, city living and all the thinking that we do and all the way that we live, everything about you. So this is applied to every aspect of the lives of human beings today. And they apply this to, and we're going to see the examples of them. They apply this to, you know, finance and economy. They apply this to, you know, the, the examples. Of, I'm not going to go through them. We don't have time. Why do people, you know, take a, a certain type of mortgage? Why do they eat a certain type of food? Why do they like to drink or sleep or eat or so on and so forth? All of it is explained through evolutionary psychology. And those of you who have studied a little bit of biology and psychology at university, you know what I'm talking about. Everything is explained through evolutionary psychology. The reason why you are the way you are, everything about you is explained through this materialist evolutionary theory. Okay, so I'm just I'm going to skip a couple of the uh, quotes that I had. I'm going to go to this one. Again, from Talos, page 43. So here he says, The mind is a system of organs. He's, he's uh, yeah, so he, here he is quoting Steven Pinker. So Steven Pinker is considered one of the biggest philosophers today in the world. Very, very popular, very present in social media and elsewhere, and, you know, prolific author and so on and so forth. So here he's quoting Steven Pinker, who says, um, the mind is a system of organs of computation so the mind, what you call the mind, is nothing more than, you're basically your brain is like a computer, okay? The mind is a system of organs of computation designed by natural selection, so the theory of evolution, designed by natural selection to solve the problems faced by our evolutionary ancestors. The brain you have is wired in a way to solve the issues that humanity was dealing with for millions of years as it was evolving. Not, you know, the 2,000 or 5,000 years you've been here. For millions of years, this was going on. And so this wired your brain and designed your brain for a certain purpose, to deal with those issues, because that's what life was forcing you to deal with. And so he continues, if the ultimate aim of your actions, irrespective of whether you are aware of this, is to promote organic survival, this may have disturbing consequences. First, it undermines claims to objective knowledge. Why? You will recall Gray's confident assertion that mind, the output of a form of human behavior, serves evolutionary success, not truth. So this is bringing us back to evolutionary theory. If your mind is wired based on evolutionary theory, then evolutionary theory, theory always says that you are being adapted to continue to survive as a species. So your brain is never going to be wired to find a truth. It doesn't need that. It doesn't have the tools to find truth and objectivity. It's wired, even if it means deceiving you, even if it means creating illusions to you, 
the point of your brain, the point of everything about you, is only survival. Not in the sense that you understand. In the raw biological sense that your genes know what they're supposed to do to continue to survive. That's one. He continues. You will uh, Second, in those cases where you seem to be serving the interests of others, as when you lay down your life for a friend, for instance, you are really serving the interest of your genetic group. And we're going to come back to that, the idea of altruism and doing anything for anyone else. You're not. You're working for your genes. That's the claim. Everything based on evolutionary psychology is based on everything is for your genetic code and your genes. It makes evolutionary sense to lay down your life if you save half a dozen other carriers of the same or very similar genetic material. So basically all of the genes are working together. If it means you need to be sacrificed, so they will sacrifice you. They will trick you into sacrificing yourself to preserve the rest of the genes, basically. Okay, and then altruism and all the norms that govern our behavior. So altruism is when you sacrifice for others uh, that govern our behavior are not about transcendental ethics, you know, ethics about something bigger than you, but about the inclusive fitness of the group about group rather than individual selection. And finally, and most upsettingly, we are not aware, unless we are instructed in biology, of the forces that are motivating and shaping our behavior. The reasons we give for the things we do are mere rationalizations that conceal from us the real reason, which is not a reason at all by a biolog biologically determined propensity. So basically, the reason you do anything is because it's an action-reaction explained only by biology but you're being tricked by your mind with whatever it needs to trick you with so that you do what you do to preserve the genetic code, okay? I thought there was an end to this, but there isn't one, so we're gonna skip to maybe the next point here. So he continues by saying, yeah, so this is the point about we are evolved from the Stone Age, Savannah, and Africa, where we are told in biology, humanity spent most of its time in the plains of Africa, in the Savannah of Africa, from the Stone Age, which is where our species has spent most of its lifetime. We are suited not for our besuited lives, but for life in the wild. And the author says, although I'm not sure how many of us would flourish any better if we were dumped in the Savannah, supported only by the Stone Age technology. At any rate, we are out of place in the places we have created, cities, offices, drawing rooms, and so on and so forth. So anyways, he's, here he's criticizing and questioning, of course, that this is the mentality of those who want to rely on evolutionary psychology, that everything you are and all of your choices and everything you do consciously or not comes to you because of the evolution of the humanity over millions of years in the African savannah. So you're designed for that, not for this life. Okay, so let's go to the consequences. Okay, the first part of the consequences is that if you start looking, if you apply this thinking to any area of human thought, and I'm not going to go through the examples, there's a lot of them, as we said, for instance, economics, for instance, art. And so you're going to find people who have applied, and this is going on, Every day, there's millions and tens of millions and more of dollars being spent in each one of these fields 
to show how it is entirely based on evolutionary psychology. So they will hook your brain and do scans while you look at art or you listen to music or you do a financial transaction. And then they will explain that based on evolutionary psychology. Not because you appreciate art or literature or history or so on and so forth. They will go back to which part of your brain is reacting and then they will explain that based on your evolution and how we got to where we are. And this is entirely explained in this way. Okay, so here are examples of economics, art, music. And then where it starts getting a lot more problematic is when you start getting into things like law and morality. Because the moment you start getting into law, it means it's prescriptive. You're telling people what they're supposed to do and why they're supposed to do it. And if you take a criminal and you ask them, why did you do the crime you did? If the answer starts becoming, well, my brain decided to do it and not me, I don't make any choices, then we're going to have a problem at a social level. How is society supposed to survive this way? And we're going to come back to this question at the end. And in the past, and this is why I wrote past and future, in the past, there were attempts to go to start going in that direction, and there were horrible consequences to this. If you start applying this to every aspect of a human being's life or a human society, this is where they start, for instance, saying there are certain races that are closer to their evolutionary ancestor than other ones. And so, for instance, they would say Africans, for instance, are closer to their ancestors than the Aryans, the blondes living in Europe. They evolved more. Therefore, they are superior and other races are inferior. And the idea of eugenics and go back to the theories behind Hitler's uh, hierarchy of, of uh, people and uh, of societies, it's all based on this. It's all based on the ideas that originated from Darwin's theory of evolution, that based on this, you can say there's a hierarchy. There are people more evolved and therefore superior, and there are people who are closer to their animal state than others. Okay, so this is, this is why I say past, humanity knows what happens when you apply this to every area. These, these are the very real consequences, and they were applied. And then the future, well, there are already a lot of thinkers and philosophers saying, why don't we build laws that take a lot more into consideration of how we truly are genetically and how we were evolved and that we change the laws and, and modify them, and even constitutions and modify them so that they're more aligned with how we truly are genetically. So you put aside, you know, the good and the moral and the virtue and the equality and all of that. And let's go back to how we truly are biologically. And it's a completely different world. If you look at you know, a jungle and how animals live, this is how, what they mean. This is how we truly are. This is how we're wired. If you're only looking at a human being from an animal perspective, then how are we different than animals in that way? Right? Okay, so one quick... Uh, I think I already maybe read this one. So within the view... This is where we get into the next step. So as we said, this is the idea of evolutionary psychology. If you take this to the end of the logic, then you reach the conclusion that there is no free will. 
everything is predetermined because you're no different than any other molecule of matter in the world. Let's say there is, I don't know, we, we, we do some sort of chemical reaction here. We take some things, we heat them up, some things blow up, some things change state, whatever. Do any of these molecules have a decision that they're making in what this? No, it's an action reaction. And what you are is nothing more than action reaction, if you accept the materialist theory. Okay, so this is where we're trying to really establish. If you take that to the end of the argument, then obviously there is no free will. You have no choice. And your idea, your feeling that you have consciousness is an illusion. You don't have consciousness. And you are not I. When you say I, we refer to that in the past couple of lectures. We talked a lot about that. There's no I. That is all of you together. Who you were 10 years ago and who you will be 30 years ago. These are just uh, ex experiences, fragmented, separate experiences, but they just happen one after the other. So you get, you're under an illusion that they are all one, one stream, one unity holding them all together. There is no such thing. These are just impulses that are happening in your brain and you're bombarded with them all the time and there's no interruption. So you get the illusion that you are an I. You can refer to yourself as I. Okay? These were our claims. So now we want to show that the claims we're not empty claims. We're relying on what they say. Within the view of materialism, everything is composed of collections of material particles. All that we experience, including our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, intentions, sense of self, and spiritual insights, result from electrochemical impulses in our brains. In, the world, in this world, people who report transcendent experiences, religious experiences, must by definition be hallucinating or having some sort of momentary brain malfunction, okay? So if you say I had a religious experience, basically your brain has stopped working or you're hallucinating. Now, let's continue with this idea of it's all an illusion. So here the author tells us, so what happens from you know everything that we have said, he says, for many, this means that we are acting out a biological script quite different from the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. How we really are is very different from the story we tell ourselves. We are obeying the commands of a script. We have biological orders because you're a biological entity and you're just performing those orders and you have no say in it. But you tell yourself a story that you're making choices and you're deciding. We may have to jettison the notion of freedom. We have to get rid of the notion of freedom and consequently of personal responsibility. These are the two big ones. Worse still, to be identified with our brains is to be identified with a piece of matter. And this, like other pieces of matter, is subject to and cannot escape from the laws of material nature. Everything that happens in our brains is a product of material events that impinge on them and the events that result from brain activity, notably our actions, are wired into the endless causal net, extending from the Big Bang to the Big Crunch. It's all predetermined. It's all 
Action, reaction. Since the moment the Big Bang began, from that moment on, everything that happens is predetermined. There's no molecule that decides something different. There, there are laws of nature, and you're part of that, and whatever happens applies in the same way. And that this is, this is the history of the material universe. Minds and persons are embedded in the physical world. Our destiny, like that of pebbles and waterfalls, is to be predestined. You're predestined. Everything has already been decided because the laws of nature don't change and they apply to you like they apply to everything else. So that's one quote. A second one here, the eminent neurophysiologist Colin Blakemore expressed his view with ad admirable lucidity when he writes, the human brain is a machine which alone accounts for all of our actions, our most private thoughts and beliefs. All our actions are products of the activity of our brains. It makes no sense in scientific terms to try to distinguish sharply between acts that result from conscious attention and those that result from our reflexes or are caused by disease or damage to the brain. It's all the same. Whatever you're doing or happening to you, it's all exactly the same. And this is why, so he says, so the author mockingly says here, he says, if we are identical with our brains or certain neural discharges of them, we must be just as unfree when we are writing a textbook about the management of seizures when our, we ourselves are in the grip of a seizure. It makes no sense in neuroscientific terms to distinguish between these two things. So he's saying you consciously, if you take a human being who is undergoing a seizure, let's say an epileptic seizure, when you lose control of your body and you have a seizure, you are in the exact same state, that's what is being claimed, as someone sitting, writing down, and he's attacking the author because the author is actually the author of a book on seizures. So he's saying, so writing a textbook to explain seizures mentally to you, you're in the same state as someone having a seizure. Because both are things happening to you and you have absolutely no choice over any of it. It's all predetermined. So he's saying, does this make sense? It can't make sense. Someone who is having the seizure and someone who's writing a book about seizures. But the claim is, that that's why he's saying, it makes no sense, that's what this guy's saying, it makes no sense to try to distinguish sharply between acts that result from conscious attention and those that result from our reflexes or are caused by disease or damage to the brain. It's all the same. Both of them cause, effect, action, reaction, no difference. And then here, he, he, uh, he gives us another quote, the conscious appreciation of emotion is looking more and more like one quite simple and sometimes inessential element of a system of survival mechanisms that mainly operate, even in adults, at an unconscious level. This is why I said it's all an illusion. It's all happening and you're not even aware of it. Okay, it's all happening at an unconscious level. And then, 58... And so here, again, it would be interesting, I don't have time to go through all of this, but to go through the history of this, because again, you get the impression that this is all very modern and what science has said. David Hume wrote about all of this a couple of hundred years ago. He, he wrote that he concluded that humans are nothing but a bundle of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity 
how fast they happen, and are in perpetual flux and movement. The identity, so you feeling like you are one, the identity which we ascribe to the mind of man is only a fictitious one. He finally says, so that's that. Those of you who think of yourselves as real are plain wrong. Then Frith, Frith is also another big author who writes a lot about this and who's written a lot about the idea that it's just an illusion, your eyes an illusion. Frith also argues that I is an illusion and believes that it is created by the brain. Anyways, so to, to nail this point home. Okay, so here are a couple of examples. Suppose, for example, a healthy man donates a kidney for free to a dying stranger. The materialist may look for an analogy among moles, rats, and chimpanzees as the best way to understand the donor's motives. He believes that the donor's mind can be completely explained by the hypothesis that his brain evolved slowly and painstakingly from the brains of creatures like these Therefore, his mind is merely an illusion created by the workings of an underdeveloped, overdeveloped brain, and his consciousness of his situation is actually irrelevant as an explanation of his actions. So it doesn't really mind, it doesn't really matter if I tell you why are you donating your kidney to someone, what you're gonna answer. Because the answer, it's already been predetermined for you. And whatever you may come up with as a Answer is actually an illusion. Your, bright, your brain is tricking you. From the materialist perspective, our human mind's consciousness and free will, so those are the two things we depended on until now for basically everything we've presented, consciousness and free will, are problems to be explained away. To see what this means, consider Harvard cognitive scientist Steven Pinker's comments on the consciousness in a recent piece in Time magazine entitled The Mystery of Consciousness. So now Steven Pinker is talking about free will and consciousness. He says, although neither problem has been solved, so keep this in mind, science has not resolved these two issues of free will and consciousness. The conclusion, neuroscientists agree on many features of both of them, and the feature they find least controversial is the one that many people outside the field find the most shocking. Francis Crick called it the astonishing hypothesis, the idea that our thoughts, sensations, joys and aches consist entirely of physiological activity in the tissues of the brain. Consciousness does not reside in an ethereal soul that uses the brain like a PDA, a personal digital assistant. Consciousness is the activity of the brain. That's it. So he starts by saying, Science has not resolved these two. The conclusion is what scientists say, this is what it is. Okay? This is, I think, a, an important quote. Now here, the, the author continues, given that Pinker admits that neither problem concerning consciousness is either solved or anywhere close to being solved, how can he be so sure that consciousness is merely the activity of the brain, implying that there is no soul? Anyways, so what's the answer? What do they say that is actually happening is that your brain is deciding for you. And I think I'm not, I don't have time here to go through all of the details on how the brain is deciding 
unconsciously everything that's happening to you and you are basically a subject and your brain is deciding everything. So very quickly, the authors conclude, so this is after a very long experiment and many of these have been happening over the years. They do certain experiments and because of the way they do the experiment, it looks like the brain is reacting before you're consciously deciding something. So it could be microseconds, it could be two seconds, five seconds, seven seconds, up to nine or 10 seconds. Your brain is reacting in a certain way and then you do what you're doing. So this basically tells them, the people who are doing the experiments, that the brain is deciding for you, but it gives you the illusion, the impression that you're the one deciding. And the proof is that it decided for you all that time before. That's the claim. And there's a lot of these experiments. So he says the conclusion of their experiment is that there is a network of high level control areas that begins to prepare an upcoming decision long before it enters awareness. So the author says, it looks as if we don't know what we are doing until we have found out that we have done it. Because the brain decided, so now we do it. The brain decided for us that we're gonna do or not do. So he continues, Levitt's original interpretation of his own experiment was that they demonstrated that we do not have free will. The brain decides to move, the brain initiates movement. As Lubitz put it in a more recent paper, if the act now process is initiated unconsciously, then the conscious free will is not doing it because the brain is doing it. You're not conscious of what you're doing. We do, however, have free wants. This is what Lubitz says. So you can decide to stop what your brain is doing. That's the conclusion of their experiment. We do, however, have free won't, not free will, free won't. We can inhibit movements that are initiated by the brain. We don't quite initiate voluntary processes. Rather, we select and control them either by permitting the movement that arises out of an unconsciously initiated process or by vetoing the progression to actual motor activation. So here the question is, Okay, so who's deciding not to let the brain do? This brings us back to the issue. So there, if your brain has decided in the experiment, if your brain has decided to initiate movement, they're saying it seems we can still stop. Who's we? Is it the brain stopping itself or is there something else stopping the brain? And of course, all of these experiments, they're flawed. There's an issue in the experiment and it's not really what they're finding out. That's what we talked about, how the brain is structured, and what's happening in the brain and how complex it is. Any of these things you measure in the wrong way, and we said all of the brain is activating all the time, what you are identifying as one thing may not be what you've identified, okay? In any case, let me uh, skip here to the next section. So, yeah, here the, this author attacks this on a number of fronts. He says the sequence does not have a beginning. So this is something we refer to. This is, the brain is always firing. You can't say this is when the sequence began and ended. That's one. And then here, for a variety of reasons, many neuroscientists argue that while the experience of free will is very real, the reality is that it is an illusion. So this is the, the punchline here. This is not the only illusion to which we are prone, apparently. We, are mistaken, we mistakenly believe that we are or have selves a coherent, enduring, unified I. This is an illusion for which we are hardwired. 
since freedom and being an enduring I are inseparably linked, it is hardly surprising that those who say farewell to freedom also say bye-bye to I. Gray argued that our lives are more like fragmentary dreams than the, the enactments of conscious selves and also stated that the upshoot of neuroscientific research is that we cannot be authors of our acts. That's a punchline. So you're feeling that you are a unified I is an illusion, and you're feeling that you are the one making your own choices, your consciousness of your own free will, and using your own free will is all an illusion. It's all you're hallucinating. It's not real. The... Practical consequences of all of this, I'm going to skip over the majority of them. I think this one summarizes it. This is very interesting here. So the author says how everything has been subsumed. They continued with these experiments, how everything has been reduced to these experiments to pinpoint things in the brain. He, he says that one of the sociologists has actually listed neurobiological accounts in alphabetical order. So for each letter, he has ascribed at least one phenomenon that you would think would never be linked to only in your brain. Examples, altruism. So this is when you sacrifice for others. Borderline personality disorder, criminal behavior, decision-making, empathy, fear, gut feelings, hope, impulsivity, judgment, love, and this is maternal, romantic, and unconditional, so all types of love, motivation, neuroticism, problem gambling, racial bias, suicide, trust, violence, wisdom, and religious zeal. So we just went through one for each letter of the alphabet. These are all things that you would normally not ascribe to, you know, chemical reactions, you would say these are very deep human emotions or states, all of these have been located in the brain. So that theory goes. Okay, so all of them reduced to things happening in the brain. I'm not going to go through all of the examples of the issues that arise from this type of, these types of experiments. There's a lot of them. Um, a lot of this has to do with the manner in which the experiments are built. Uh, we talked about the way MRIs are done. So MRIs, the way they're done, they're measuring one thing very specifically, but they're not measuring a whole lot of other things happening. So even at the level of the brain, you can't really say this is what's happening. That's one. Two, the manner in which these experiments are done is that uh, it doesn't tell the whole story. Much more of the brain is already active or lit up. All that can be observed is the additional activity associated with the stimulus, so we don't get the full picture of what's happening in the brain. Thirdly, all the experiments are reductionist. So they take something that is much more complex in human life, and they say, this is what it is. They show you a picture of someone who's in your family, in their mind, assuming that, obviously, this represents love, unconditional love to a member in your family. And then they track what's happening, they scan what's happening in your brain but there's a whole host of other emotions maybe that you're getting when you're looking at this picture and memories and you have your own psychological state. What if the difference between, let's say you had a fight with this person yesterday versus someone you haven't seen in 10 years. Of course, you're not going to have the same emotions towards that picture if the picture is actually representative of how you're feeling towards that person. 
Anyways, so all of this, I'm skipping over all of this to say the fact that the experiments are problematic has actually been raised multiple times, even in the most uh, you know, well-known papers in science today. So one of them is science and one of them is nature. These are the two biggest, most popular magazines of science, peer-reviewed magazines of science in the world. And here the authors have observed in multiple uh, articles that a disturbingly large and quite prominent segment of MRI scan research on emotion, personality, social cognition is using seriously defective research methods and producing a profusion of numbers that should not be believed. Okay, but the research continues and the articles continue. And I promise you that if you look at the news tomorrow morning, you will see an article related to evolutionary psychology, something being explained through how you're wired biologically. Okay, every single day there is stuff about this and the research continues. So what's the alternative to all of this? The alternative, so it is claimed, the alternative to the idea that there's a soul. That's what we presented. So if there is no soul, then what's the alternative? What's the other option left if there is no soul? We said the conclusions and we read them, we didn't make them up. We're not saying if you don't, if you deny the soul, then you've denied free will. And they say, no, no, I, I accept free will and I accept moral responsibility. No, no, we read the quotes from them saying there is no free will and everything else that you're talking about is actually an illusion. You've just created this kind of fake package of your own experiences and what validates what you want to do in life. So the alternative, you have no soul, you have no free will, you have no morality, and we claim there is no meaning. So I thought I would read to you, I think this is the strongest from everything that I have read. This is perhaps the strongest argument that I have seen on how to make things work without a soul. Can you still live as a human being and still keep the idea of having a free will having the notion that you are an identity, having moral responsibility, finding happiness and meaning in your life, even though you do not have a soul. Okay, and the short answer, and we're gonna come back to this in the next lectures, short answer we think is no. And there's plenty of philosophical schools that were created to say, no, it's impossible. This is nihilism. Okay, and we're gonna come back to that. Here we're going to read this quote, this passage, that if there's anyone who wants to claim there's a strong argument that they can still find a way to live a happy life, it's going to be based on something like this. I think this is, to me, the strongest argument I've seen. So the author says, a good way to illustrate this empowering conclusion that you can still live a good life without the soul that the soul just does more damage to you because you're believing in an illusion, is through the story of Dumbo's magic feather. I don't know how many of you know the story of Dumbo. He's basically a, an elephant with gigantic ears who's actually able to use them to fly. So before they told him that this is a magic feather. So if you hold the magic feather and you flap your ears, you can fly. So he's always afraid of not having his feather when he wants to fly because it's a magic feather. But at some point he falls 
and the magic feather is not there. And then they tell him, it's not a magic feather, it's just a feather. You don't need it to fly, you can fly by yourself. Okay, this is the analogy that the author is going to use about the soul. So he says, a good way to illustrate this empowering conclusion is through the story of Dumbo's magic feather. In Walt Disney's famous story, Dumbo the elephant receives a magic feather from his friends that he thinks allows him to fly. In reality, the feather is just a psychological trick to boost Dumbo's confidence. He can fly perfectly well without the feather, relying on his natural abilities and his unusually large ears. In the final scene, Dumbo is poised to perform a perilous jump from an elevated platform. During his descent, he loses his magic feather, and he fears he will not be able to survive his last dive. In the nick of time, his friend Timothy the mouse manages to tell him that the feather is not magical and that he can fly on his own. Empowered by these words, Dumbo bravely deploys his oversized ears and flies around the circus in front of a dazzled crowd. What I want to show you in the pages ahead that he's going to write, the author, is that we are just like Dumbo, a bit superstitious because we believe in souls, but brave and resilient nonetheless. We do not really need the soul, our magic feather, to soar above the abyss of nihilism and thrive as human beings. Let me play the role of Timothy the mouse, Dumbo's friend and ally, and ally, and show you why we can safely let go of our soul without fearing that the sky will fall on our heads. So here he's going to start by basically telling us that you don't need the soul to believe in the good and the bad. You don't need the soul to feel like you are free to make your own choices. You don't need the soul to make you believe that there's an afterlife. And so his main idea is that by believing that you are going to die, this is going to be a motivating factor for you because you know your days are numbered here. Your time is numbered. Your, your time is limited. So might as well make the most of it. And all a human being needs is to live in a supporting community. If you have a loving family and you have enough to do within a community, then you can find happiness. And the reason why you are going to remain a good citizen is because if we look at our laws and if we look at everything that we do, we know when we talk to any one of us, you know that this is good and this is bad. So therefore, that's enough. We don't need to go back to you know, what biology is saying that this is all an illusion, this is all not real, that we're just biological and chemical entities. You have to put all of that aside. The fact that we're talking about good and bad means that we're wired to live in a certain way, and so we should live according to what is good and bad. So you know, that's why I ask you, based on this, based on this version of what we're presenting as an alternative. So there is no soul, therefore there is no free will, therefore there is no identity, consciousness, moral responsibility. But really what we're told here by this author, uh, Julian Mussolini, Mussolino, not Mussolini. So basically this entire book has been written to show that the soul is a fallacy. It's actually a good book if you want to see all the arguments against. And a lot of them are very weak, but that's a, another discussion for another day. Um, the, uh, the conclusion here is that although we are losing 
free will, although we are losing moral responsibility, although we are losing the idea of good and bad and the afterlife and so on and so forth, he says there's still a way to salvage all of this. The soul to us was nothing more than like the magic feather. So we believed that all of this depended on the magic feather, the soul. But the truth is humanity never really needed the magic feather. Humanity was able to live like this all along without relying on the idea of a magic feather. So now that we know there is no magic feather, like Dumbo, we know that we can fly on our own. We know that we can survive on our own without relying on a fallacy, an illusion, a made-up thing called the soul. Okay, so my question to you, and you know, there's a lot more we can, we can say here, but I think we, were, we went way over time. Do you feel that this is a convincing alternative? That you can tell human beings that, yes, there is no soul and therefore there is no free will and there is no uh, conscious, consciousness and there is no unified I and there is no moral responsibility because it's all predetermined because it's all the laws of chemistry and biology being imposed on you and the theory of evolution applied to you. And yet you are still supposed to live a happy healthy, good life, full of virtue, just based on the fact that you have a loving family and you are an active member of a community and that's really all that you need and knowing that you're going to die and there is nothing after death is fine, it does nothing to your happiness and it changes nothing to meaning in your life. Okay, so that I will end with that so that I, I won't take uh, any more of your time. Inshallah, with the, with the quotes that we, we went through and some of these books, the idea was that we confirm the things that we've been claiming about, you know, atheists, yes, but really it's materialists. A lot of this, as we said, is linked to other things that we have not now talked about. Uh, when we began this series, we had dedicated maybe five, seven lectures where we talked about the beginning of human humanity and the theory of evolution. We talked about the beginning of life. We talked about the beginning of the universe. And with all of this, you know, this fits in there with what is the soul and do we need it or not? And what are the consequences of not believing in the soul as we are told by the people who have done that research and they concluded that there is no soul? What, they have, what have they actually said? So if you now find a friend or someone who tells you there is a way to still believe in your free will and still believe in that you are not predetermined and yet be completely materialistic, I would you know, tell you to advise them to go back to these authors and these scholars who have done the research and who have concluded that there is no soul, therefore there are none of these things and the rest that you're talking about is illusions. Okay, so we'll stop here and if there's anything else we can discuss. And I really apologize, I went way too long. I had too many quotes prepared. So inshallah, the, the point has been made clearly. And I guess it's a good thing I didn't read more books. <laughs> yeah. So questions, concerns, and or to me more importantly, the question that I asked at the end. Is this part clear? Do you feel like the alternative being provided is actually an alternative? When someone says there is no soul, equals everything we said. There is no 
free will. There is no I, no consciousness. It's an illusion. Can you still live a full human life with everything we know about human beings? Sacrifice, good and bad. You do the right thing. Meaning behind everything that you do. And this is what gets you through the difficult times and so on and so forth. Is there a way to still justify or not? Is, is there a way to accept this as an alternative? Or is this some people deluding themselves? I know what I think, but it's to see what you guys think too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just have like, I want to talk about that last book you mentioned. So it's like he's basing, he's basing his like alternative, I guess, based on the fact that, you know, based on materialism, right? Yeah. Well, materialism doesn't actually back up this theory. So it's kind of like me writing like a philosophy book and referencing like a math, a math resource. Right? It, it, it's like the actual, what he's like, what he's using as a reference doesn't actually back up what he's saying because it doesn't relate. So when you say he's using as a reference. Yeah, like the fact that there is no soul and like all of that right? yeah it has nothing like it doesn't back up his theory of like it doesn't relate to the fact that he's saying um he's basically saying like throw that out the window yeah right and come listen to this new theory that i have yeah so basically what like he does the way the way this book is structured the soul fallacy yeah um he, he basically starts by saying, here are the big families of proofs, families of arguments, of those who claim there's a soul. And let me show you why they don't make sense. And that this, is a, this is the part that I was looking forward to when I read the book. I want to see how he's going to dismantle you know, all of these arguments for the existence of the soul. Now, some of them are weak, and some of them are good arguments, and he dismisses them. Fine. And then he says, let me show you the opposite evidence. And then so he goes into the science. And he starts mentioning all these brain scans and showing you that basically the best explanation we have, first of all, we cannot accept anything that is not materialist. And that's the biggest issue. The biggest issue is if you've closed the door to anything outside of, if you say that there is nothing beyond, and then you start looking for the soul or consciousness or your identity in the brain and you don't find it, the conclusion cannot only be, therefore there is no brain. I said, I'm going to look for my consciousness here. I didn't find it here, therefore there, yeah, but what about maybe elsewhere? Maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Maybe your consciousness is not something that you can find in your brain. Maybe that's the issue. But because you've closed the door to that and said, this is the only place I can find it because I'm a materialist, which is what he does in the second part of the book. So now he openly says, there is no soul. He's dismantled all those arguments. And instead, we know everything we know about the brain. So therefore, we must accept the brain. Now we have a problem. The problem is, okay, but how are we supposed to live a good human life? So now here... In those two last chapters, one of them, they're, they're, they're smart titles that he put to them. The first one is the sum of all fears. This is the part that I quoted from. It's the sum of all fears. So the fear that you no longer have a free will, the fear that you're no longer 
responsible for your actions, that you're now conscious, that there's no afterlife, all the fears of humanity, now what are we going to do with them? So now he's telling you, so let me give you the answer. You don't need them. You don't need the soul to still live a good life. And then he adds one more chapter, imagine. So basically, you know, imagine the good life of only based on the truth of science. Okay, that's the, the last chapter of the book. Anyways. Okay, so, yeah, I think the, the, the main argument, I agree with you. And, and honestly, this is the weakest part of the book. And as I said to me, that was still one of the best arguments I've seen. And he basically combines together the idea, the, the biggest idea right now there is for people who are atheists and people who are saying that it's still possible to live a good life. There, the possibility of living a good life without a god. The possibility of living a good life still being entirely materialist. They're trying to do a lot of research to show that people who are not believers in God and not followers of a religion they can still be very happy. So when they ask people, are you living a happy life? A lot of them can say yes. And so they go to those people who are happy and they see how are they living. And what is it? What's that big criteria that makes someone happy or not? And the conclusion they're finding, which is very important, and inshallah we're talking about, it needs to be discussed properly, is the feeling of community. The more a human being feels like they're an active part of a community, the more their level of happiness seems to increase. So they say they don't need God for that, and they don't need an afterlife for that. If you are day-to-day -day living in the moment, and you are well-supported as part of a community, so family and beyond, that's all you need. You can be happy. So this is what this is based on. And so let's not look at beyond. The problem is human beings cannot not look beyond. That's the whole existential questions of where am I from and where am I going, and what am I doing here? So if I want to live day to day, you, every time I want to look, every time we don't look, that's kind of a, it's a trick. You're, you're, you're cheating me. You're not letting me be fully human and deal with the issues that I want to deal with as a human being. And if I want to deal with them, then you're certainly not providing the tools. Yeah, very, very good point. Um, so here there's a, a comment. So there's a question about when we say the I, do we refer to the nafs? And is there more than one definition to the term I in Islamic teachings? No, I'm referring to the very simple notion of, uh, you know, your, when you say I, what do you feel? When you say I eat, I sleep, I am. That's all I'm talking about. So it's this psychological state of experiencing yourself of referring to that self. That's what we're talking about. Now, if we add nefs or we add anything else, then now we're going to add a whole lot of other baggage that we don't, talk, we don't want to talk about. Very simply, just I, when we say I, the I itself, your feeling, your direct experience of yourself is enough of a proof that you have a soul. That's all basically presented last time. And then there was a, here another question, I think we can't because the way the world operates includes judgments and consequences. Absolutely. That's our claim to. Our question is, do you think you can validate when someone says, I have an alternative, so I guess you agree that there is no alternative. So excellent point to you too. There was a question we received a couple of weeks ago related to this, uh, and the question was, I don't want to forget it. The question, yeah, the question was, um, 
why don't we say there are parts, there are some cells in the brain that we know do never die. They don't die. We said everything else might die, blah, blah, blah. But there are parts of the brain that seem to never die and they stay with us our entire lives. Why don't we say that those are the parts where the eye is held? If everything is changing, those parts are with us. So this is where the eyes help. In short, I'm not going to go into the, uh, the anatomy of the brain, but in short, no one has claimed that. Because it's, this is too simplistic. There's obviously a lot more going on in the brain than specific individual neurons. So that's not, you, no one has claimed that this is a part that has all of you. And in fact, as we saw, those who are materialists, they're saying that there is no I. So while you're trying to find a, a loophole for them, they have openly said this does not work, and therefore they're not even trying to find something that unites all of your experience into one entity. They say we don't need that. We are a sequence of a lot of fragmented experiences, all happening all at once, that give us the illusion that we are one entity, but we're not. So that was the answer to that question, inshallah, that's clear. And from next week, inshallah, we're going to go back to the topic of the afterlife. And we are going to jump into the arguments to show why do we need an afterlife. What's the necessity of believing in the afterlife to have a full uh, worldview system? Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sallam. Wa sallam.